we've got four really um, sort of distinguished and young, sort of young and senior people who've been around, have done a lot of work over the years, and people who are just starting out careers, but doing uh, first-rate work as well. Um, I guess the best way for me to describe the group of people that are here today is that if you recall that in February, Science Magazine published two articles dealing with biofuels. And immediately thereafter, it had to do with land conversion, it had to do with net uh, accounting, whether you're getting a net loss or savings of greenhouse gas emissions using certain biofuel crops and so on. And it gathered a lot of press, TV, radio, print, and uh, a lot of things were said in the press, some of which were on the money, some of which weren't. But uh, we thought we'd bring in this group of folks to sort of speak to this issue uh, as the people who did the work on this, to speak firsthand from the point of view of the people who did the research as opposed to sort of getting the intermediaries in the way. And uh, so we're going to start off today with uh, Joe Fargioni right here to my right. Going to follow that with uh, Tim Searchinger, Dan Kamen, and Dave Tillman. And uh, if you've read their bios, uh, you know, we've got folks here for, who are members of the National Academy of Sciences. Dave Tillman, who's been awarded uh, almost uh, every award I can think of in ecology and uh, ecosystem research. And uh, all three of these people have been working on this biofuels issue pretty hard pretty intensely and coming at it from different perspectives. Uh, and Dan Kamen has done a lot of uh, research on the broader perspective of biofuels in the context, context of a great many other things as well. Uh, renewable energies, uh, examples being uh, plug-in hybrids, uh, scaling up biofuels, what kind of scale issues are you dealing with here, how much of the percentage of the future will biofuels uh, account for. Anyway. Without going any further, I'm going to start the show off with Joe Fargione here. We're going to keep everybody to 15 minutes, open it up after everybody's had a chance to speak. We'll have a Q&A. Please, no floor statements. Questions, no statements. The reason the cards are on the chair is because we don't want statements. So I'm going to cut you off. If you start a statement, if you want to make a declaration, Feel free to walk outside and make it, but please don't make it here. We've got an hour of Q&A. We want to, we've got a large crowd. We want to hear the questions and hear the exchanges between the speakers and the audience. So, Joe. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to the American Meteorological Society and Tony for hosting. Um, I'm going to be presenting today some research that I started when I was working as a research associate at the University of Minnesota that um, I've been continuing. And, in my position as a scientist at the Nature Conservancy. And um, I'm uh, excited to, to be here and, and share this with you today. Go. So as I think you all know, that there's been a recent, there are several reasons for the recent dramatic increase in biofuel production. And I think the primary reasons have probably been rural economic development and energy security. And um, Another reason that's been important for many people in their support of biofuels is that it has the potential to reduce carbon emissions and mitigate climate change. And it's this last reason that I'll be talking about today. Um, this gives a brief outline of what I'll be talking about. 
going to review some previous research that looked at the benefits of offsetting uh, gasoline with biofuels, and then um, talk about my research, which considered the effect of land clearing, which was something that hadn't been fully accounted for in previous research. And so I'll start with a little bit of uh, background and motivation for why should we consider this, uh, the effect of biofuels on land clearing at all? Why is that important to consider? And then I'll present the results of our study, and I'll conclude um, with a couple comments on how we might make biofuels that avoid land clearing. And I'll just briefly touch on that, and, and um, I know Dave and Dan um, will be going into that a little bit more in depth, some of the alternatives. So I'll just briefly touch on that in my talk. So um, previous research looked at a variety of biofuels and compared them to gasoline and conducted what people refer to as life cycle analysis. And this is one such uh, paper that was conducted on corn ethanol. And um, I just use this as an illustrative example for a couple reasons. One, this is probably the gold standard in this type of research. And the second, we're privileged to have one of the authors of this study uh, joining us, Dan Kamen. Kamen will be uh, talking later. So um, this what they did, they did a life, what's called a life cycle analysis, and this basically says, let's take into account all of the energy that, uh, and this was published in Science in 2006, and they said, let's uh, take into account all of the energy that went into producing um, biofuels, in this case, corn ethanol, including the energy that goes into producing the fertilizer, the diesel you need for your tractor, the energy that goes into converting the corn into ethanol at the processing plant and so on, and, and they looked at all of the greenhouse gas emissions that um, occurred in that process, and they compared that to the greenhouse gas emissions that are released by producing gasoline, and they, and they concluded that ethanol is better than gasoline, and, and um, based on their average performance for today's corn ethanol was about 13% reduction. And um, they also, but they also noted that um, this study, which was a synthesis of all the previous research, did not take into account greenhouse gas emissions from land use change. And they noted that this was an important thing that might be considered in future studies. And um, basically, it was on the to-do list. And um, in fact, this group has been working on these issues since then, as we'll hear a little bit more about later today. So from a uh, perspective, this is one motivation for including land use change. It was something that hadn't, um, to, for doing a study on land use changes, because it was something that hadn't been fully addressed in previous research. A second reason motivating um, or answering the question why we should look at land use change is that it's mandated. Um, so here we have the Energy Independence and Security Act uh, passed and signed December of 2007, which has a renewable fuel standard which mandates biofuels, mandates 15 billion gallons of biofuel by 2015. Uh, it mandates an additional 21 billion gallons of advanced biofuels by 2022, so for a grand total by 2022 of 36 billion gallons of biofuels. But it doesn't just mandate any kind of biofuel, it mandates biofuels that have uh, lower greenhouse gas emissions. And as you can see by the highlighted text here, um, when the, in the quantification of the greenhouse gas emissions from these biofuels, they're, they're mandated to include direct and indirect effects of land use change. And when I say they here, I guess that's the the EPA, which is in charge of it, administrating this. So there's, a, there's some federal legislation mandating this, so that's another reason to look at it. Um, but I think perhaps the best reason are the scientific ones. And so here's some facts about land clearing. 
There's almost three times as much carbon stored uh, in the plants and soils on our earth as there is in the air or in the atmosphere. And so most of you, yeah, if you think back, you may recall from your high school biology class that life on earth is carbon-based. So plants, for example, are about 50% carbon by weight. And when we clear land and convert it to agriculture, that carbon is released through burning and decomposition, and it's released as carbon dioxide, which, as you know, is an important greenhouse gas and contributes to global warming. So most people recognize that when we burn trees, for example, that releases carbon dioxide. Not everyone realizes that when we um, plow soil or plant annual crops on soil, then that we're releasing carbon from the soil through increased decomposition. And in gra U.S. grasslands, for example, we release about 40% of the carbon from that soil, the, from the top layers of soil, about 30, top 30 centimeters of soil, release about 40% of the carbon um, to the atmosphere when we convert grassland to agriculture. And this is globally significant. It causes, um, <clears throat> land clearing causes about 20% of our global carbon emissions, and this is larger than the uh, whole transportation sector. So not only do, does land clearing cause carbon emissions, but biofuels can cause land clearing. And so the way I like to um, think about this is sort of step back and take a global perspective. Right now we have about six and a half billion people on the planet. Our population is going to grow to about nine billion by mid-century. And um, that population is that larger and wealthier population, which is going to eat more meat, which requires more grain, is expected to about double food demand. Um, and many people, we, don't, we can't accurately predict what our crop yield increases are going to be between now and mid-century, but many people feel that they won't be sufficient to meet food demand, which means we're already going to require clearing of additional land to meet our food needs. So any land that uh, we need to grow biofuels is, would then be in addition to the land that we're already clearing to meet our food demand. And so um, this land is not entirely coming from natural ecosystems, but much of that land does come from natural ecosystems. And here's a picture of land uh, rainforest in Indonesia that was cleared to produce uh, um, palm, uh, palm oil plantation. And some of that palm oil plantation, some of the increase in demand is because of uh, European demand for, for biodiesel. But we don't need to look to the tropics to look for instances where demand for biofuel is contributing to uh, land conversion or land clearing. Last year, um, well, I have to explain what the Conservation Reserve Program is, even though I'm guessing most of you might know, but um, higher crop prices have led farmers to choose to opt out of the Conservation Reserve Program and um, plant their land to crops. Conservation Reserve Program is a program by the U.S. federal government that pays farmers to take environmentally sensitive land out of crop production and put it into perennials. It's mostly grasses. There's currently, well, last year there were 36 million acres in the program. Now there's 34 million acres. Um, so this increased demand for biofuels, which is contributing to increasing crop prices, is spurring this conversion. By 2010, we know there'll be over 4.5 million acres um, of grassland converted. And economic analyses suggest that if we were to open CRP, in other words, if we were, right now there's penalties for early withdrawal. So every year a farmer gets an annual payment. And if they have an early withdrawal, they have to pay back that whole annual payment. So after one year, 
um, they'd have to pay the back there $100 an acre or whatever it was. And after um, 10 years, they have to pay $1,000 because they have to pay all 10 years back. So, um, but if some people are considering that we eliminate that penalty, which uh, economic analyses in Iowa suggest that they're at $4 a corn, which is cheaper than what it's at now, they would lose 60% of their grassland in this program to cropland. And so we don't have similar estimates for national numbers, but if you were to scale up and say half of our CRP land um, could be converted, that'd be 18 million acres. So you're talking about significant areas of land here. And it's um, one thing that uh, <clears throat> the people may not be aware is that it's not only land that was previously cropped that would be coming back into production, which is what the Conservation Reserve Program land is, but there's also some of our native prairie, which has been used as pasture that is being converted. And, and this, um, I, don't mean, I don't intend to attribute this to, to biofuels, but um, entirely or even primarily to biofuels, but there's been over half a million acres of native prairie that's been newly plowed uh, this century in the Western US. And the increased crop prices are likely to spur that demand. This is a surprise to most people. A lot of people say, well, we plowed up all our prairie that uh, 100 years ago, and it's, it's not an ongoing problem, but it is. So based on this context, um, myself and my co-authors listed here, as Tony mentioned, had a paper published in Science in February. And this paper looks at the effect of biofuels on carbon emissions, including their effect on land clearing. And so I'm going to just briefly give an overview of the methods. And it's a little bit more complicated than this, but not too much more complicated. It's pretty straightforward. If you look, OK, here's the grassland. Let's see if I can use the pointer. Yeah, I don't need to use the pointer. Here's the, um, oh, there's the pointer. Well, I think it's close enough. I can, here's the grassland. Um, and if you, just, if you look at a grassland, and you look at how much carbon is in that grassland, and you compare it to how much carbon is in a cornfield, there's much more carbon in the grassland. And so when we convert the grassland to the cornfield, that carbon has to go somewhere. It's emitted uh, as carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and contributes to global warming. So here we have measured in terms of, their ton, uh, in terms of tons of CO2, carbon dioxide, uh, per hectare. There's 280, about 286 tons uh, of carbon in our um, remaining native prairies. Uh, and there's about 160 tons of carbon dioxide in the, the cornfield. And so that means there's about 126 tons of CO2 released when we, you convert the grassland to the cornfield. And um, the part that's a little bit more complicated is then you have to attribute some of that to the ethanol and some of that to the co-product, in this case, distillers dry grain. And so we, we did that accounting. But this is the basic process. And so then the, the, the question we ask is, how does this compare then to the benefits you get by taking that corn, converting it to ethanol, using that in your car instead of gasoline. Because that, that replaces some gasoline, and as we saw from this previous research, has some benefits. And so how do those two things compare? Well, uh, it turns out that the amount of carbon released from the grassland is much, much more than the amount of carbon you save every year from using corn ethanol. So uh, when, in fact, when grassland is converted to corn, the carbon releases about 93 times the amount of carbon saved by the ethanol from one year's worth of corn. So in other words, if you take a grassland, convert it to a cornfield, turn that corn into ethanol, um, use that ethanol in your car instead of gasoline, and you do that for 93 years, you've, you've saved as much carbon as basically 
uh, as if you had left the grassland alone and left it intact in the first place. So it takes 93 years of those savings just to get back to where you started if you had left the grassland intact. Okay, and so one of the um, important points that, um, that other people have made in response to this paper and we acknowledge is that we are just looking at the corn that is planted on the converted land. And that's a small portion. So as we mentioned, there's a couple million acres of grassland converted last year, but there was 15 million more acres of corn between 2006 and 2007. And, there's a, and most of that land came from soybeans. There's, um, I've seen different numbers, there's about 12 million ac uh, fewer acres of soybeans. So most of that land is coming from other crops, and that doesn't require con direct conversion because you just take it from soybean to corn. So you're not, you don't have that kind of carbon that we talked about. However, as other, Tim and others will talk about more, when, you, um, when we had that dramatic decrease in, in the production of uh, soybean, the price of soybean went up about 66%. And we know from um, other work that the rate of deforestation in the Amazon is positively correlated with soybean prices. And so there's this indirect effect of if we don't produce the soybeans here, they're going to be produced somewhere else. And what effect does that have? And where does that land come from? And that is a, um, a more complicated question to address and uh, takes a uh, more difficult question, takes a braver soul than myself to address that. And we'll hear more from one such braver soul um, in the next talk. But it is important to point out that, that this indirect effect is, all, is likely to be quite large because there's even more carbon lost from these rainforests because they have these big trees that have a lot of carbon. So in term, again, in terms of um, carbon dioxide, there's about 927 tons per hectare of carbon in the um, rain, Amazonian rainforest, only 112 tons in uh, soybean field. And so you have emissions of about over 800 tons of, of carbon per hectare. And if you were to use that soy and convert that to biodiesel, um, <clears throat> the scenario is even worse than for corn. So when Amazonian rainforest is converted to soy, the carbon release is about 319 times the amount of carbon saved if you were to convert that soy to biodiesel and um, run your car on biodiesel instead of diesel. So we conducted similar analyses for a range of options. And um, I'll just point out, and so this reports the years to repay what we've referred to as the carbon debt. So that amount, when you convert grassland to a cornfield or a rainforest to soybeans, um, you release a, a bunch of carbon over, it doesn't happen instantaneously, but over um, say 10, 20 years, you release a bunch of carbon and that's sort of a one-time cost. It's sort of like taking out a loan and then every year as you're using the, uh, the crop to produce biofuel, you're paying back a little bit of it. So we refer to it as a carbon debt and the question is how many years does it take to repay the carbon debt? And, um, <clears throat> and so we have that reported for a variety of scenarios and I'll just uh, point out a couple examples for palm, biodiesel, um, the worst, our worst case scenario is planting palm trees, uh, palm oil trees on peatland in Indonesia and Malaysia. And the reason this is the worst case is because in order to plant uh, this plantation on the peatland, you first have to dig a canal, drain the peatland, and as soon as you do that, that very rich organic soil starts to decompose and releases huge amounts of carbon to the atmosphere. So that was the worst case scenario. You wouldn't pay back till over 400 years. But the, other thing I'd like to point about in this graph, on the right side, we have a couple examples 
And these are examples um, where if we assume that cellulosic, well, these just use existing cellulosic uh, conversion rates, but, and, and as I think you will hear more about later, it's not yet commercially viable, but if cellulosic ethanol were to become commercially viable, we could use native perennials. Um, and we use one example of diverse native perennials. If you were to plant this on abandoned cropland or marginal cropland that doesn't require conversion of existing habitat, and you have immediate and sustained benefits. And so, um, so that there's a big difference between biofuels that are, are uh, planted on converted land and, and biofuels that don't require that. And so, in conclusion, food-based biofuels require cropland. That seems like an obvious statement. I mean, sort of by definition, if it's food-based and you're growing it on its cropland. Um, some cropland comes from clearing natural ecosystems, and the carbon emissions from these cleared lands is greater for decades to centuries than the carbon offset by the biofuels grown on these lands. And so the implications are that biofuels that can avoid land clearing are going to have a significant carbon advantage. And so um, what does that mean? How might we make biofuels that are going to avoid land clearing? Well, cellulosic ethanol would enable several alternative options. And these alternatives include waste biomass, algae, and perennials on degraded land, none of which would require clearing of new land. And it's important that term waste biomass encompasses a lot more than most people realize. This includes agricultural residues, cover crops, storm and pest damage trees, forest thinning for fire risk reduction, waste from the forest industry, the food industry, municipal waste, and um, what potentially waste from concentrated animal feeding operations. So there's a, w a wide range of potential uh, that's, that's rolled up into that term, waste biomass. So potential strategies to reduce carbon emissions are to protect the natural ecosystems and the carbon they contain, and finally to encourage biofuels that avoid land clearing by using waste biomass and degraded land. And I think my time's up. Thank you. pointer and this is the clicker okay well thank you very much uh, Joe covered a lot of the ground that are the basics so that I can uh, go a little faster on some of these slides uh, the paper that uh, I was involved with involved uh, first of all about six economists at Iowa State University and uh, they did the agricultural modeling the agricultural analysis which they originally did n not for this purpose at all but just to understand market conditions uh, and then a, a lot of the analysis of carbon releases from ecosystems came from uh, Ski Houghton at Woods Hole Research Center, who is probably the most published expert on these kinds of land use change emissions. So really my role was just to put all this together uh, and uh, kind of help explain it. Uh, and, and let me start by just phrasing land use change in a slightly uh, different context, which is to ask, why is it that we think that a biofuel has the potential to reduce greenhouse gases to begin with? And the answer, of course, is that when you make a biofuel from a plant, you start by growing the plant. And growing the plant takes carbon out of the atmosphere. 
So when you burn the fuel, you're simply putting carbon back into the atmosphere that you already took out of the atmosphere. And in theory, but for the costs of making that biofuel, uh, you don't get any increase in emissions. And by contrast, gasoline, you take carbon out of the ground and you put it into the atmosphere. And so gasoline increases atmospheric emissions. And you see this in, explicitly in these life cycle analyses that have found that biofuels reduce greenhouse gas benefits. So this is a table from the, uh, the GREET model. The GREET model is the most commonly used model, shows these kinds of biofuel benefits. And uh, it breaks down the comparison into different stages of production. So this is for gasoline, this is mining the crude oil, and for corn ethanol, it's growing the corn. Then refining the crude oil, and then refining the corn into ethanol. And then burning, which are roughly the same. And in these three steps alone, corn ethanol gives you actually a net increase in greenhouse gases. If you're only counting those three factors, it takes more energy, more emissions to make corn ethanol than to make gasoline and to burn it in the tank. Uh, and you see that right here. So without what we call uh, feedstock credit, you, you end up with an increase. However, for corn ethanol, the models assign, or for any ethanol, they assign the biofuel the credit for all the carbon taken out of the ground in growing the biofuel. And that's why you get a benefit. And so under the GREET model, when you count in this factor, you get a 20% reduction in CO2. So the initial question to ask is, why? Why do we assume a feedstock credit? If you use productive land to grow the plant, that plant, that land already exists. That land is already taking carbon out of the atmosphere. In fact, there's a good chance that land has taken carbon out of the atmosphere for decades and stored it. And trees and soils and grasslands, and, and particularly the roots of grasses. So when you assign a benefit to a biofuel for taking carbon out of the air, without subtracting the fact that that land was already taking carbon out of the air, you're basically engaged in one-sided accounting. And to be honest, all the previous life, with, with a couple of minor exceptions, the previous life cycle analyses did this one-sided accounting. It is no different than if you were to do an economic study of producing biofuels and assume that your land was free economically. Now, Joe has already described basically what happened. So, so here, the, the simplest way of thinking of land use change is to use the examples that uh, Joe and Dave's team looked at where you directly go into forest or grassland and you clear that land to grow, let's say, corn or even switchgrass for a biofuel. And Joe talked about the fact that you get this big release of carbon, and that's what their study quantified. Now, there's another effect as well, which is that if you didn't clear that land, that land would continue to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Now, the general belief is that some mature ecosystems are in carbon equilibrium. They don't give you an ongoing benefit. However, virtually all the world's grassland is grazed, that, grit, that carbon, the reason it's not accumulating more carbon like trees is because the grass is either burning off under natural conditions or in today's managed world, it's producing food. So when you convert grassland, you're losing food. When you convert most of the world's forests 
have been cut down at some point or other, and they're going to continue to sequester carbon on an ongoing basis. So you're also losing this ongoing carbon sequestration when you lose the land for a biofuel rather than for uh, its natural condition. And these are additional carbon costs that Dave and Joe didn't even uh, factor in. Now, how does this happen? Now, the, our, our study is basically focused on the fact that, uh, as Joe said, you don't just go and convert rainforest for crops. Instead, for example, for corn ethanol, you use our corn for ethanol. So when we can use our corn for ethanol, uh, as Joe pointed out, that comes out of soybeans. You have increased demand for corn. The price of soybeans and corn grows up. And that sends a market signal to the rest of the world, including the US, to produce more crops. Now, that's a good thing. If we didn't produce more crops when we used up our crops, a lot of people would starve. So it's a good thing. That's how the market works. And it becomes obvious, the kinds of displacement effects become really obvious when you think of the fact that 30 million acres of corn-based ethanol would be equivalent to the entire US corn production from 2004. So if you want to think about 15 billion gallons of corn ethanol, which is what's essentially mandated by the energy bill, that's half of the US corn production until we started really boosting it for ethanol. We're the world's largest producer of corn, by far the world's largest exporter of corn. It's obvious that's going to be replaced. And not surprisingly, studies have in fact shown that when the price of soybeans goes up, the rate of clearing of rainforest also goes up. And that's exactly what you'd expect. One reason it happens so quickly is that when you're, just as when you're thinking about buying a house or a real estate developer is thinking of building a property, uh, you're, what you're thinking about is land appreciation. When you clear land in the rainforest, it immediately appreciates in value, and you can flip it and sell it. And that value is based on the expected future returns to agriculture. So when you dramatically increase the price of soybeans, let's say, the future returns to agriculture go up, and the value of the land goes up. And that's why this, con this conversion can happen so quickly. So the bottom line is that the only way you can possibly get a greenhouse gas benefit from a biofuel is one of two options. Either you're going to increase the net amount of carbon taken out of the atmosphere by land, or alternatively, you're going to use what I call the free carbon lunch. You're going to find some carbon that's otherwise on the ground, that's otherwise going to go back into the atmosphere, and instead of just losing it, you're going to use it on the way. Now, before getting into our detailed calculations, here's why we think using productive land is very likely to cause net increases in greenhouse gases. And the first answer is when you divert grain or cropland that produces grain, most of that food will be replaced. That's because the demand for food is relatively inelastic, and that's a good thing. Not replacing it means massive death. So that's the first thing. The second is, and I'll go, come back to this in a little more detail, is that the main way it will be replaced is by plowing up new cropland. Now, when I was in uh, uh, college, I was led to believe, taught that uh, pre prevailing view that a tropical uh, forest was terrible cropland. We now know that's not true. We've learned how to make it into ter terrific cropland. There are hundreds of millions of acres of available cropland, potential cropland, to convert fairly cheaply in the world. Uh, it has environmental costs. 
but you can do it to produce food. And then the most important reason is pretty much just a repetition of what Joe uh, had already shown, which is corn-based ethanol per hectare gives you less than two tons of uh, greenhouse gas benefits per year. If you convert an acre of forest, you're from 600 to 1,100 tons. Grassland, 75 to 305 tons. Even switchgrass, under advanced technologies, gives you about 8.6 uh, tons per acre, uh, uh, per hectare per year. And what you realize is that if even a significant fraction of, a, of, a, of an acre is converted for every acre you use for biofuel, you're going to end up with a serious net negative over a long period of time. Now, why, do the, why does the time period matter? The time period matters because all of the IPCC studies tell you we have to reduce greenhouse gases now, not 100 years from now. And so if you increase greenhouse gases in the next 30 years, I don't care how much benefit you're going to get later on, that's a big, big problem. OK, what did we do? We started off with the fact that we used the GREET model for all calculations apart from land use change. So all we did was we took the existing life cycle analysis and factored in land use change. For land use change, we used the Iowa State card model. All these models have been perfections. Most people would agree it's the most sophisticated world agricultural model. And it tells you, in response to an increase in, in US corn ethanol, precisely how many additional acres of cropland producing which crop are going to exist in each country around the world. That then, you have to say, well, OK, we're going to have new cropland in Brazil, China, uh, Southeast Asia, the US. What kind of land is going to be converted? And what we did was we used data from the 1990s that said, well, for example, in Brazil in the 1990s, 50% or so of the land use change of the cropland came out of Cerrado, not Amazon. So most of our land use change is based on a more lowland forest for Brazil, not rainforest, certain amount of grassland. And there's a big mix. Half of the land use change we predict is grassland, a lot is lowland forest, et cetera. Now, just so we factor in a lot of things. When you use corn for ethanol, you don't lose all the food value. A third of the corn basically comes back as food in the form of a byproduct. And prices go up. Because prices go up, people do eat less. Now, this is significant, and particularly significant in the discussion of food prices today. Because people eat less, we get a greenhouse gas benefit. We get a greenhouse gas benefit from the fact that people eat less. We factored that in. EPA will factor that in. EPA will tell you, oh, some biofuels might be better than we otherwise would think because people will eat less. Uh, and then the fact is that when we increase prices, not all of the, of the food will come from plowing up new land. Some of it will come from boosting yields in existing land. I'm going to talk about that a little more. When you calculate all of that and you factor it back in, the key numbers here are you add in the land use change numbers. And then you get a final result. And our final result for corn ethanol was that you get a 93% increase in corn ethanol over a 30-year period. Put another way, the payback period, similar to what Joe talked about, is 167 years, which means you'll increase greenhouse gas emissions for 167 years. 93% means you've basically doubled emissions for every mile you drive. Now, this is also very important for switchgrass or advanced biofuels. Advanced biofuels are a lot better than, than corn, but if you were to grow them on good cropland, you still have to replace the food. And we calculated 
a 50% increase in greenhouse gas emissions if you grew switchgrass at predicted much higher yields than you can get today uh, by uh, 2015, uh, but you still have to replace the food. We did a lot of sensitivity analysis. Basically, the bottom line is, no matter, we say, okay, assume we're, we're drunk and wrong and we're just completely wrong on this and totally wrong on that. You can't get to a number where corn ethanol gives you a net greenhouse gas benefit. To give you some idea, if corn ethanol were to emerge in your tank with no emissions and you were to burn it with no emissions, it were a completely free fuel. The only emissions were land use change there would be an increase in greenhouse gas emissions over 30 years. Okay, people have accused us of saying the worst case scenario. Let me give you an example. We followed a method that basically said, even if bad things are gonna happen, but we can't quantify them, we're gonna leave them out. So for example, uh, Joe pointed out that wetland soils give up tremendous amounts of greenhouse gas, uh, of, of carbon when drained. We didn't know what percentage of wetlands would be converted outside of Southeast Asia. We had no basis for estimating. We left it out. That could significantly increase the emission number. There are wetlands all over the Amazon, for example. Another thing is, even though I mentioned the fact that grassland, when you get rid of grassland, when you plow up grassland, you're losing food, we didn't have a quantitative way of estimating how you would replace that grass food. So we left that out. Some of you may be aware of this work by Paul Crutzen and others suggesting that we have, that the IPCC, the scientific community, has greatly underestimated the amount of nitrous oxide that's emitted in cropland uh, as a percentage basis from fertilizer. Most people believe that the, we're gonna eventually settle on an emission factor that's significantly higher than we use today. That would make the calculations significantly worse. Now here's another effect. It's pretty well understood that when you go to a part of the Amazon, you cut down half of it, you dry out the other half in that neighboring area, making it more fire prone. We didn't factor that in either. We are not by any close to the worst case scenario. Okay, let me just talk about some of the criticisms. I have very little time. The first round of criticisms was uh, basically based on what I would call um, mis uh, interesting misinterpretations of what we actually did. Uh, there were accusations that we didn't factor in rising yields. We did. That we used only pristine ecosystems. We didn't. In fact, some of the land we estimate is cr existing cropland that will remain in production uh, rather than leaving production. The biggest accusation was, hey, you're estimating 30 billion gallons of ethanol, and we're not going to do that. You've doubled the amount. But the, what we focus on is a rate of emission the rate of emission per gallon. And when we in fact looked at even a smaller increase and looked at the rate of emission for a smaller increase, our numbers went up. People said, well, what about the land use from oil? The answer is it's tiny. Uh, some had said, well, look, we're still exporting a lot of corn this last year, nothing's happening to the market. Uh, the reason is basically we use a lot of soybean land to grow corn and we've enormously drawn down stocks to continue these exports. And then you have these logical flaws that basically say, well, aren't there other causes of deforestation? To which I say, yes, so what? Uh, we're focused on this cause. Now, what if we all became vegetarians and there was lots of free land around? And the answer is, okay, there are a lot of things we could do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but we're focused on what you get for each gallon of ethanol. And things that you do independent of the ethanol don't matter. Uh, let me uh, just... Um, uh, take two more things briefly. One is that the EU 
has proposed a, a directive that would increase to 10% the amount of uh, biofuels that they would require, 10% by energy amount. So that's more like 14% or something. Uh, and their strategy is to say, well, we won't count biofuels produced on newly converted forest. And I call this the dim-witted businessman strategy, because this is how you respond to that if you make palm oil in Indonesia. You say, I will have one tank for all of my existing palm oil for the forest I've already cut down, and I will turn that to biodiesel and I will sell that to Europe. And now I have a new tank for all the new forests that I cut down to make new palm oil to replace all the vegetable oil that I've just now used for biodiesel. So it has no effect. Um, let me say uh, briefly on uh, food consumption. One of the effects is to drive up prices. You're hearing about that today. 5% of the world's cereals are now being used for biofuels plus vegetable oil. Um, this has real effects. Um, what if we had a global climate change treaty that said you can't convert forest land? What would the effect of that be? Well, if it were truly, truly universal, you can't do it anywhere, the effect of that would mean that we would increase demand for crops through biofuel mandates. We would constrain supply, and the price would go up even more. And the way you reach equilibrium is people eat less. We would then have greenhouse gas benefits, essentially, by people eating less. Um, I'm going to maybe come back to some of that later. But let me just, I'll just close with this added factoid. Uh, the good news is that if you trust the advocates of biofuels, most of the material we could use for biofuels is not affected by what I have to say. So these are the DOE study, the billion ton study, and most of their tons of biomass are waste products. We don't need to convert land to make biofuels if DOE is right. And then there are other sources they didn't even consider, like municipal solid waste. And then there are other potential, more advanced technologies. So the, um, the basic rule should be convert waste, not food and forest. And, and I'll just, uh, the last thing I'll say, because I'm out of time, is why we shouldn't just follow a one criterion approach. Let me give you an example that may, might be able to produce greenhouse gas benefits. Brazil goes to the Amazon and says, okay, we're not going to just burn it down. We're going to chop it down and we're going to put it, all that wood in a highly fuel efficient, a highly efficient uh, power plant and get all the power that we can get out of that. And then after we've chopped it down, we're going to grow fast growing grasses and this kind of thing. So unlike in our analysis where you just lose that carbon there, they get all these carbon, you get all these savings. You're saving all this electric power that you might have to generate in some other way. Well, if your criterion, if your sole criterion is greenhouse gas benefits, that may be what we're encouraging. There may be ways to produce some greenhouse gas benefits, but only if we ignore all of these other environmental effects. So I'll leave it at that. There's obviously a lot more to talk to but, uh, about, but we'll get into some of the questions. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here.
should be working. Good. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I won't probably take as long, I hope, since half what I was going to say has already been said by the two previous speakers, which is fabulous. Um, well, that could be true. Uh, so uh, after uh, our last article came out, it was clear to me and to many people in my group that um, things which we had talked about in that paper but not in as much depth maybe as we could have and things we said in earlier papers were somehow lost in the excitement and I think very important concern about the issues that were raised in that paper and in the uh, paper that Tim Sershinger's group came out with. And uh, we then thought it'd be fun to jump back in uh, to looking at the sort of the solutions. Given these problems, what can we do about them? Well, the, um, I mean, the, the problems are evident in the newspapers. And I would say each of the headlines that you've seen that are so dramatic uh, have an element of truth and an element of exaggeration. But I, I'm delighted, frankly, that the headlines uh, uh, at least have on the table a very important topic about land use and its implications for biofuels, greenhouse gases, loss of biodiversity, weren't in the headlines but should have been, as Tim already pointed out, uh, but also uh, the implications of how we do agriculture for the next 50 years are equally serious for greenhouse gases, as much as serious as uh, the implications of how we do biofuels for the next 50 years. And I think on a global level, we have to ask these questions and have a wise strategy that looks at the interplay of all of these forces. You know, we have six billion people heading toward nine or nine and a half billion people. Per capita, constant buying power is gonna go up about 140% on average around the whole world in the next 50 years. We're gonna have many, many more people consuming much more per person. And the two major limiting things for human society are gonna be food and energy. And in, the, and in extracting the food and energy from the world, it has major impacts upon greenhouse gases, biological diversity and the stability and functioning of the world's ecosystems. And so these are some of the issues that, that we have been uh, dealing with uh, since then. So food. This is what happened uh, during the Green Revolution, the last 35 or 40 years, global food production doubled. And it's on a trajectory to at least double again, based upon many different independent ways of looking at it, during the next 40 to 50 years. And you can ask, how are we going to meet that food demand? That is not yet really well met, quite frankly but has major implications. The same thing is true for energy. Energy use doubled in the last 35 years also, and it's on a, uh, uh, a, a trajectory to double again in about the next 35 years, and maybe a bit faster as we see massive increases in energy uh, as uh, developing nations uh, become more and more wealthy. So there really are issues, which I, I say ultimately are ethical issues, issues about how can nine billion people live on a, on a world in a way which is equitable, one country to another. I envision that all people of the world are created equal and, and have the same rights to the same quality of life. Uh, that means, though, we're going to have major obligations to each other in how we use these limiting resources, how we produce the food, use the energy, and so on. So uh, agricultural expansion, if things go well, may need only one billion more hectares of land. That's a land mass the size of the United States, coming out of native ecosystems, releasing the greenhouse gases, losing the biological diversity, all of that uh, for uh, cultivated land and grazing land. That's sort of the business as usual uh, projection. If yields don't increase as quickly as they have in the past, we need a lot more land. If we have some real miracles in, in, in agricultural yields, this could, could, could come down quite a bit. Clearly, um, biofuels, except for those coming from waste uh, 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 sources, as, we'll t as I talked about, will talk about, and as uh, Tim Sershinger already talked about, can also use land to make uh, uh, biofuels, and that could be another major impact. Um, 
you can ask, what is going to be the price of food for the people around the world? Is the price of food going to become the energy equivalent of whatever the price of oil is? If it is, there will be several billion people around the world who have a very difficult time uh, being able to feed their, themselves and their families. But that's the directions or the genie is out of the bottle. We can convert food into energy. We can convert land into energy. Land could be used to grow food. That's a major issue we need to be concerned with. Another thing you can ask, well, what about can biofuels even be viable at these prices of food? Just on the pure food demand side, and the amount of fertile land we have to produce food, would a farmer choose to grow a biofuel crop when they can get uh, five or six or seven dollars a bushel for corn, or ten dollars a bushel for wheat, or the price of rice and so on, as all these things have gone up double or more in, in the recent era? Um, I don't have good answers for all these questions. I'm my group is working on these questions and trying to get answers, but these are some very important questions we're going to be facing as, as we go forward. So um, you can ask on, on biofuels and the greenhouse gas benefits. Um, as Tim pointed out, I don't want to repeat what I'm going to be very quick because this has already really been said. Um, the two things which make biofuels not give us big greenhouse gas benefits are uh, if there's been direct or indirect land clearing and the associated greenhouse gas release to get the biomass from which we make those biofuels and the extent to which the biofuel conversion process uses fossil energy, which is what currently happens in most uh, processes of, of creating ethanol out of corn. Sixty percent of the energy in corn ethanol is fossil energy that was used at the production facility to make that corn ethanol. We have to lower that number down so it's basically zero. All we use is biomass energy, so we have carbon neutral carbon, if you will, being released in the conversion process. These are the two things we have to do if we want to have a greenhouse gas effective um, biofuel. So, you know, where can we get the biomass? Again, Tim uh, talked about this. Um, so, res residual biomass from agriculture and forestry could be used, but you might, I call this residual, not waste. Um, the leftover parts of a corn plant, about half of the mass of a corn plant is called corn stover, contains nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium. If you remove it from the land, you have to replace that. You replace the nitrogen with nitrogen fertilizer, which is a very energetically expensive item to make. And when you apply extra nitrogen fertilizer to make up for the corn stover you've removed, you have extra nitrous oxide greenhouse gases. So the, sort of the, the next step in these analyses becomes a bit more complex. Uh, when you look at these, these are not carbon-free, energy-free sources. They can play some part, I would assert, for our society, but we need, ha need to have analyses that are a bit more thorough than we've seen published so far. Um, it's possible to grow biofuels on degraded lands, and if these degraded lands are truly lands that are no longer acceptable for agriculture, they can avoid uh, the indirect carbon debt that Tim was talking about, but Tim and I have had discussions as to where this line should be drawn. I think it's an open question. Uh, but uh, if the agricultural lands have long been cleared and farmed, if they're planted, uh, let's say CRP lands are planted with crops that, that give more biomass per acre than CRP does and stores more carbon in the soil than the CRP was storing, and CRP does store carbon in soil, uh, then um, there would be no carbon debt and there might even be uh, the possibility of extra carbon being stored and having a carbon neutral biofuel. And there's a possibility which has been uh, discussed, but I'm not an expert on this and I, I'm I say it's the, of these things is the thing I'm personally least comfortable with and my group is least comfortable with, and that is a possibility of some biofuels coming from uh, non-waste forestry biomass. Um, demand for forest goods goes up and down. Right now it's a bit low with the housing industry low, and you might say, oh, they're cheap, we can make biofuels. But when housing industry 
is uh, rapidly expanding. Suddenly, timber is more valuable. Uh, pulp demand can go, can go up and down. This is a category that is worthy of, of further exploration, uh, but I'm not going to show you much on that because I, I don't know much about it. So my group, so this is Jason Hill and Steve Pulaski, um, Eric Nelson and I have been trying to come up with what we think are estimates of how much biomass might come from these various sources in a way which would be environmentally sustainable, in a way which has uh, no carbon debt or very minimal carbon debts from these supplies, and therefore which could allow you to make biofuels that would um, have major greenhouse gas advantages, assuming you made them in a way where the biofuel production process was driven by biomass uh, energy, not by fossil energy. So uh, if you look at the uh, acres that are currently in CRP, uh, if you look at the, some of the least productive acres in CRP, the land that is unlikely to be used for corn were drawn out of CRP, for instance, uh, and ask what kind of biomass yields you might get on that if you planted them to various dedicated crops, uh, we estimate we can get on the order for the U.S. of 80 to 100 million tons per year of dedicated perennial crop biomass on these lands, biomass grown in a way which actually at least continues the rate of carbon stores that, are go that currently go on in CRP lands or increases it, and biomass grown in ways uh, that could uh, at least maintain and hopefully improve the quality of those habitats for other environmental benefits, for, for prevention of erosion of soil, for wildlife benefits, and so on. It's not going to be an easy task. You're trying to optimize, not maximize uh, this land. You're not trying to just maximize yield. You're trying to optimize getting energy from the land, harvest at a time when it doesn't harm uh, wildlife, uh, optimize uh, carbon stores. So you have five or six or seven factors that society cares about you're trying to optimize. But we think it's plausible uh, to get on the order of uh, 80 to 100 million tons per year from those lands. Uh, corn and wheat residues. Um, a sustainable supply has to look at effects uh, of the, of the uh, corn residue left on the soil surface on erosion, wind and water erosion, carbon loss that way, on the carbon replenishment, nutrient replenishment, uh, the alternative costs of replacing lost nutrients with fertilizers, the energy costs, economic costs, and so on. Um, this number is much lower than many of the earlier uh, suggestions that have been in the literature because I think uh, the more recent research by Wilhelm and others on these issues suggests we have to leave a lot more of crop residue in a field to maintain fertility in the long term and minimize other effects. So our estimate now, and right now I'm just calling it a ballpark estimate, uh, is someplace between 100 and 150 uh, tons per year that might be harvestable. And it's not going to be the same amount from each field or from each spot in a field. It's going to require a more precise kind of agriculture to do this in a wise manner. Um, then the forestry slash thinnings, urban waste uh, wood, uh, mill residues, uh, all those sorts of things um, um, we think might be able to provide on the order of 70 to 140 million tons. Again, much lower than some of the other estimates that are out there. Um, they're lower for two reasons. I think there's great uncertainty as to uh, how much of the forest land, which tends to be highly sloped land, uh, can actually be uh, satisfactorily have uh, slashed and so on removed without causing major erosion, other uh, land quality, adjacent water quality issues. How much of that slash needs to be left on the land to recycle nutrients in it? Uh, we don't normally fertilize forests. It's a pretty expensive process. Uh, and at least the, the finer parts of branches and leaves, needles uh, and so on, have a lot of nutrient in them. So lots of issues that need to be looked at. We think uh, from what we've seen, and especially heavy on, on the waste wood from mills and so on that we can have on the order of the 70 to 140 million tons per year. And then 
the waste stream coming into admissible waste treatment uh, plants and so on, the, uh, the, the organic biomass in that, much of which is paper, cardboard, and so on. Uh, we think there could be reasonable separation of that, giving us another 20 to 40 million tons a year. In total, this gives us, as you see on the bottom, 270 to maybe 430 uh, million tons per year. It's not the 700-some million tons for, of the, that the billion-ton study suggested or the 1.3 billion that the billion-ton study projected into the future, and we haven't done future projections. It's a smaller, more conservative number, but one that we think, given the constraints that we, we believe are important, is a, a, a doable number. Well, the good news is, oops, there should have been another slide in here. Well, I'll just have to tell you the good news out this slide. It must have, uh, I don't know. Um, the good news is uh, uh, that amount, 270 to 430 million tons per year, can be converted by uh, the technology currently being developed at approximately 70 gallons of ethanol per ton of biomass into uh, about, um, what is it, 22 to 32 or so uh, billion gallons per year of ethanol. Uh, so this is at least equaling or exceeding uh, the, the recent um, uh, uh, Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007's uh, goal for advanced biofuels. So we're saying it looks as if the goal for advanced biofuels can be met in ways which we would assert are not going to cause uh, direct carbon debt or indirect carbon debt, but in fact can give us biofuels if they're done properly, and there are lots of research that need to be done in, for, to really explore these cases, they can give us biofuels that are very close to carbon neutral, as I'll show you in a minute, which greatly exceeds the requirement of, of that bill, which only asks for 50% reduction. Carbon neutral is 100% reduction. So um, one of the ways this can be done, I showed, I showed people before, uh, is by growing high diversity mixtures of plants. Uh, most of the work that's been done so far has, uh, by other people has looked at single species mixtures, and I just had to you know, I'm a salesman, I have to show you this idea. Don't forget our paper in science in 2006 is not dead yet. Uh, it's, it's still alive and kicking. Um, so uh, there's a potential for a variety of crops, uh, one, of, uh, one of which might be mixed species crops, where instead of applying fertilizer, you use legumes, which fix nitrogen to provide the nitrogen fertilizer to the grasses. And you have the legumes grow when it's cool, the grasses grow when it's warm, so they don't interfere with each other seasonally in, in the growth patterns, but you'll get much higher yields because of that. And you also, from a paper we have that had just come out in the Journal of Ecology, uh, we, we showed that that interaction between legumes and grasses also causes much more rapid uh, increases of carbon being stored in the soil by those plant communities, much larger than uh, from, boy, time flies when you're up here and having fun. Uh, I get the signals here from the ones I gave earlier I'm now getting. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I will just quickly say, yes, a lot of carbon is stored in the soil, and if you uh, look at the effect of that, sorry about that, if you blinked, you missed it, uh, but it, it came out, it was published about a year ago, so you can find that. Um, we then did analysis using GREET of uh, comparing uh, gasoline with current corn ethanol, um, with miscanthus, um, which is a, a perennial uh, a grass that would be traditionally grown in monoculture, uh, switchgrass, again, grown in monoculture, or this mixed prairie uh, high diversity uh, mixtures that we've looked at. And looking at the full life cycle, growing these on lands not suitable for agriculture, but in different places in the landscape most likely, miscanthus in wetter, more low-lying soils, it has a very high water requirement, not as much nitrogen requirement. And then uh, switchgrass and the mixed prairie on uh, more upland soils. The full life cycle estimates are basically that these fuels are carbon neutral. 
no net release of carbon uh, from these. This is because um, uh, at least two of these have uh, these, the switchgrass and the mixed prairie grass, uh, especially, have greater carbon stores than the average reported greater rates of storage of carbon in soil that are greater than the average reported for CRP lands. Now, there aren't many studies, and this could be noise. It may be that they're equal and there should be no credit. I don't know. But, it, but right now, the, the numbers, uh, are, we're just using the actual averages and, and projecting for them. And because you're actually getting an extra benefit uh, from storing more carbon in the soil under some of these species than was being done on the CRP that is there now that you'd replace, uh, that stored carbon can help forgive some of the carbon you release when you mow these and transport them and so on to make a biofuel from them. So the net effect is something that's very close to carbon neutral fuels coming out of this. Oh, here's my energy, energy yield slide in the wrong place. Okay. So I guess in conclusion, I think that uh, there's a way to get within the timeline envisioned by the uh, Energy uh, Independence and Security Act, which I think is a very wise act in a large number of ways. I think that we have the potential to have biomass sources, much of them from non-dedicated crops, uh, that can provide us with all that that law mandates and, and likely more and that in doing so, that we will be able to produce biofuels that greatly exceed the 50% reduction in greenhouse gas that that bill calls for, but we will be closer to a 90 or so 100% reduction of a, of a true carbon neutral fuel. Thank you. doing that and not very good. Thanks so much. Okay, well, I'd like to try to do two things in the last of the talks, and that is uh, hopefully to put the biofuel story in a little bit broader context and also add, I fear, the other sort of depressing uh, factoid, which is important to put in the, put in the uh, context of this, this discussion, and that is that we've heard a process here where the amount of fuels, amount of Transportation fuels from biofuels may be going down somewhat dramatically in its potential here in the talks, and, and, and notably in, in some, of, uh, some of Tim's comments. But I want to highlight the broader picture, and that is that to the extent that we have burned through roughly half of the known supply of easy-to-access sweet crude, the so-called peak oil story, i.e. we've used a little bit less than one trillion barrels of, of oil in our human history, there is perhaps another that, that much out there or so. So we've used about half of this peak oil story, give or take 30-40%, that when you get to the other flavors of oil out there, using the unconventional forms of oil, both some of the sour flavors and some of the oil that we would get from regions like the polar regions, we haven't in fact used about half of our oil supply. We've used something like 1 15th to 1 17th, then when you take the processes that will allow us to make liquid fuels out of natural gas and out of coal, the so-called Fischer-Tropes processes, we've used something more like 140th to 145th of our total oil supply out there. So the biggest denominator to worry about here is that as energy prices rise, and even if they fall some but continue a upward trend overall, we're not talking about a denominator of using up half of this stuff. We have this massively larger supply of oil that we are likely to burn through in the absence of strong policy. 
I, whatever we think we're going to do in terms of the indirect land use effect, we are still likely to swamp that as prices for fossil fuels rise. All of these unconventional things that take much more energy and effort to extract become all the more attractive, including some of the less beneficial ways to manage land to use land improperly. So there are several bad denominators evolving at once here that have to be part of the equation. That can't be me, is it? That's very embarrassing for the speaker when I turned this off at one point. Translation in that story, I've actually never done that one before. Translation in that story, we have multiple aspects of this equation all going in the wrong direction at once. The biofuels are a piece of it, but we have this much larger denominator. This is the cook the planet scenario by any of the economic pictures one looks at. What that means is that something like the New England, the Reggie Coalition, some of the European versions, I'll highlight the California one as I'm based at UC Berkeley, are going to have to figure very strongly in, even if we learn better science about the biofuel story or about the extraction of leaving oil on the ground story. The California Climate Bill, Assembly Bill 32, calls for, but we have not even started to achieve, a 25% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions over the next 12 years and feeds into a 2050 goal that David highlighted at the end, and that is an 80% reduction or more in greenhouse gases by mid-century. That's going to put incredible pressure on all of these to be in play. The degree to which you're an optimist or now a pessimist around biofuels based on sort of the Tim uh, versus so Joe in the middle, say Tim on one end and David on the other, we're going to need to research all of these to get a mixture that's going to get us anywhere along this path, i.e. the strong policy route. And as everyone knows, not only has the increase in, 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 in conversion of current food stocks, corn and soy, into ethanol been on the dramatic rise. So is their prices because it is the global price for fossil fuels that are largely going to set these prices. Biofuels are unlikely to somehow undercut fossil fuels dramatically in cost. These are all increasing at the same dangerous path. And so again, whether it's a corn-based ethanol for all the greenhouse gas problems you heard here, whether it's a Brazilian sugarcane or the Indonesian sugar industry likely to come online very strong in the coming years. These are all giving exactly the wrong pressures as the science of biofuels evolves. There are a couple places where research is going on in large measures. Whether they produce results in a useful time frame, we'll find out. But at UC Berkeley, partnered with the University of Illinois, and Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, we are involved in a half a billion dollar research program funded largely by BP that was British Petroleum, is now was, then was Beyond Petroleum, and now is somewhere a hybrid between British and Beyond. <laughs> Efforts like this are not the only ones out there. The US Department of Energy has a very aggressive program on these so-called cellulosic next generation biofuels as well. BP has another effort to look at algae fuels, Chevron. There are a number of these efforts out there. How quickly they bear fruit is going to be critical to the story, but this larger constraint on land use is going to make these stories very difficult to get large amounts of yields. The version of the picture that we were showing before the indirect land use story came up highlights this range, and this is really has got to be the starting ground for the policy prescription that's going to need this new science. So what's plotted here, you don't have to read the numbers because I'm sure in the back they're too small, but on the y-axis is the amount of greenhouse gases associated with a unit of fuel. So if the red line is gasoline, if that's your benchmark, 
many of the dirtiest fossil fuels, taking tar sands and shale oil, using Fischer-Tropsch processes to, to convert coal into fuels, give you a fuel that per gallon is almost twice as bad as gasoline. We had this sort of hopeful path of a variety of, cell of cellulosic and other biofuels that got cleaner, and maybe even some that began to sequester. These are the ones now that I'll just come to here, are now contested by where the science is. I, we're going to have to learn more about these discoveries, which ones to highlight. And David highlighted a few of the potential upsides for them. I'm going to put the one regulatory perspective into, um, into play here because it's critical. How we both regulate and develop the science is going to determine which of these we have any chance to pursue. What California passed in January 2007 was something we worked on for quite a while, and that was something called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard. And the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, as many of you who have worked on it here, I hope know, set a line as our current greenhouse gas intensity of fuel, of gasoline, as our benchmark. And what the political discussion in California said is we will set a target of our fuel must be 10% or more less carbonized by 2020. 10% over 12 years does not sound like a lot. There are estimates for what we think we could achieve. We're somewhere between 15 to 30%. But setting a, a regulatory standard that doesn't pick winners, that allows fuels to compete into a market that is a significant driver of overall uh, of gasoline demand in the US is, I think, our best current tool for how to get there. The more this sort of process expands, the more we will get the regional markets to push for a lower carbon flavor. And remember, what it does is it does not pick a winner, but it does, based on the science you just heard, pick a real regulatory issue. What this is going to require is greenhouse gas labeling of those fuels from a very complicated set of sources. We're going to have to know the life, hist life history, the genealogy, of biofuels coming from Brazil, coming from Illinois, coming from wherever. That's going to be critical part in the story. That requires a high science, high information-based economy. All of the ideas about carbon footprinting and labeling are exactly what we believe we're going to have to do in some form. And California has put a version of this into effect. California hasn't just done fuels. There is a carbon footprint calculator that actually our lab developed with the suitably grandiose California title. It's called coolcalifornia.org. It's a website supported by the state where you can put in your purchases of fuels, of durable goods, of foods, and find out what the carbon labeling of that is. That's essentially what we're talking about here for our liquid fuels. The other place where this story is going to be critically important is what happens in developing countries, where on some people's mind, there's a great deal of degraded land, which usually means land that poor people live on, they eke out a living, and we might appropriate it. But it also is land where there is a potential to do something which is not fully part of the equation. Tim highlighted it. But if you just look, for example, at the lands in Africa that are significantly degraded, that are suitable to grow some of the crops that do not emphasize a food versus fuel crisis, crops like sweet sorghum that can either be for food or could potentially be for biofuels. Just taking, for example, the amount of those lands currently highly degraded and take just the waste biofuels, i.e. the amount of food crops that never make it to anyone's mouth, whether it's a local consumption or whether it's markets, is about half of many of those foods. 
there is a place where reinvesting in better agriculture for better food production and fuel production has a chance to impact a number of these features. And so one of the places where this debate is going to have to be examined in a great deal more detail is what can our agricultural and biofuel research strategies paired with efforts by USAID and GTZ and many of the groups that work on these issues, CGIR, there's a long list, can actually look for places to do this in a positive way. Now that is not an equation that I would argue we've done well, even at the height of green revolution euphoria. Green revolution, on average, produced more yields, as David showed, but for the poorest farmers, it was often not a positive strategy, to say the least. So finding ways to build in this critical part of the equation is going to have to be part of the story as well. Again, I'm highlighting towards this need to be much more holistic. Let me highlight a little bit of what I would argue is the, as the beneficial side, because normally I give positive talks, and this is a very negative one in some sense. And that is, there are a whole range of options. Number one, I'm not even going to show because it has to be the efficiency option. And at least three days ago, we heard a more forward-looking version of the higher CAFE efficiency standards by Transportation Secretary Peters. We're going to have to go far beyond these things. Many of the debates about more efficient vehicles today in the United States, to put it bluntly, are maybe by 2020, we will achieve what Italy does today. That's an unacceptable baseline in terms of how more efficient our vehicles become to address any of these issues. Let me highlight one to um, before I close that opens up some of the opportunities to think differently about it. Vehicle efficiency by all measures doesn't just mean more efficient single passenger vehicles. It also means much better mass transit. It also means interacting with land use and housing, which is the one that we conspicuously avoid on all equations. But we are going to have to give liquid fuel greenhouse gas benefits, credits, for doing better planning to reduce vehicle miles traveled, and in particular, single occupancy or sole owner vehicle miles traveled. That's not going to be simple. It has to be part of this equation, or no matter how good the upside of biofuels or what I'll talk about now, plug-in hybrids are, we're not going to get there to a reasonable greenhouse gas signature from transportation. Plug-in hybrids are an attractive piece of this, and in fact, if I were a betting individual, which I guess I am, I would actually bet, personally, this is my off-the-record comment, that this has a better upside than the biofuel story. We don't need one versus the other. This is not about choosing A versus B. But in terms of a place to, to bet, this one has a lot of features um, that are beneficial in my view. One write-off is at this uh, incredibly antiquated price for gasoline. <laughs> a plug-in hybrid vehicle travels the same distance for a dramatically lower cost due to the lower cost of the, the, the lower life cycle cost of producing transportation energy via large um, energy sources than trying to burn it in your vehicle, which is a very odd concept, but we won't go back to the, uh, the Model T for the story. Um, but what I want to highlight is that picture I showed you before with all of those fuels with gasoline in here and the real ugly, dirty fossil fuels and then some of these potentially more beneficial biofuels, I'm highlight, I'll highlight whoops, one of them in here. And that is electricity from, um, for electricity from the grid in California is way down here relative to gasoline. And that's because California's grid is overall relatively clean. The other benefit of the story is that right now, we, by definition, dramatically underutilize our grid for part of the day. 
Nighttime use of the grid is dramatically down from daytime, I think thankfully for a bunch of reasons. Some of us sleep. But the feature is that we then underutilize that system. And there's a variety of very low carbon supply options available at night to charge up vehicles when hopefully most of us are not using those vehicles. Hydropower is a possibility. Off-peak nuclear and off-peak wind are all very attractive ways to charge up significant number of plug-in hybrid vehicles. In fact, analysis that I won't go through because of time pressure, I would really get Tony angry if I launched into it, is that in California, with about 17 million vehicles on the road, there would be zero need for new major infrastructure to power one million, one-seventeenth of all the vehicles in, his, in, in, in the U.S.'s largest vehicle market with existing supply that we underutilize at night. The fact that the price of electricity drops dramatically at night versus the day may change in a positive way as you charge up your vehicles, but notice that there's a lot of headroom between the price that we're, you're charging up your vehicle by, on your plug-in versus the gasoline price. So there's a very large upside to going this route. In fact, a place like California is a good example. California, which was the largest producer of wind power, now, now surpassed dramatically so by Texas, is unlikely to build any large fraction of that wind capacity because it largely blows at night. It's not useful for meeting peak demand unless we have storage, which plug-in vehicles provide. At an additional cost of between six dollars and $8,000 per vehicle today, with our batteries that are woefully inadequate to the task based on where research is going, we can have economically competitive plug-in hybrid cars on the road now at a gasoline price of about $5 a gallon. It depends on your assumption about whether you're making your small sedans or your SUVs to be the first model of this. I'm highlighting that not to say the plug-in hybrids are the answer, but I'm hoping it highlights what I said in the beginning, and that is we're going to need a range of these. We're going to need to rate fuels, and we're going to need to develop the political tools to stick with that. This sort of rating is a starting ground of that process where as we learn new things about good or bad features of biofuels, good or bad features of the life cycle impacts of the, car, of the vehicle batteries, good or bad features of the decisions we make about land use, we're going to need to factor this into the equation. And that may sound like a morass, but when I was describing this to a recent uh, House committee, I said, well, this is actually much simpler than we deal with with your 401ks and things all the time. So it doesn't mean it can't be done, but this is going to require the policy push as strongly as the science push. So that's really where our recommendation from my lab at Berkeley goes, and that is all of these are possible, but we're going to have to push much more strongly on a science and monitoring-based system to get all of these options in play. However, the end story ends up on biofuels from a given piece of land, be it in Iowa or be it in the Amazon. Thanks very much. Under time, right? Um, yeah, this. Just going to switch on there again if you turn that off. I'm going to uh, do the Q&A this way here. I'm going to ask you, because we're taping this in the back, I'm going to ask people to come up here state your question, and I'm going to insist on a question and not a statement or, a, you know. I think everybody's got a lot of questions, and I, I really want to get the exchanges going here. And we'll stay as long as we can. I mean, we're here formally till 2 o'clock. We'll stay until 
your questions are over or they throw us out. I'll put it that way. So why don't you come up here, use the microphone, direct your question to whoever you're directing it to or to the panel in general, and uh, we'll take it from there. Again, please, no floor statements. Sure. Questioner, I think I saw one. Because then I can't get their faces on camera, sir. Very sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Dan is not running for governor. That's right. <laughs> so, again, let's not use up time. You want to come up, ask a question, come up here. I'm Keith Sargent. I'm an economist with the Environmental Protection Agency, and no one mentioned the cost of advanced biofuels. This question for David Tillman. He suggested there were lots of available sources for cellulosic ethanol, but he said nothing about the breakthroughs needed to make cellulosic ethanol competitive with gasoline. What is the current cost of cellulosic ethanol from each of the sources you mentioned? It's a good question. Um, I'm currently serving on a panel that's trying to answer that question, so I really can't tell you an answer yet. I don't know it, but it is being calculated. Um, the, um, there, there are two parts to it. One is the cost of producing it, and the other is, the, uh, is trying to monetize the uh, externalities that come from it versus its alternatives. And I don't know which will prove to be bigger. The truth of the matter is we don't know. I mean, all cellulosic ethanol projections, all these greenhouse gas calculations, apart from land use change, are predicated on a whole series of technological breakthroughs that uh, we're hoping for and uh, certain assumptions. But I, since you've raised the cost factor, I did want to bring out a few things. Uh, first, uh, there have been calculations by the OECD that in the U.S., the total subsidies for each gallon of, of ethanol are more than $4 a gallon on top of the actual price. So to give you some idea, we had to talk about uh, that that today you would basically have to subsidize hybrid uh, vehicles, plug-in hybrids, by a buck and a half per gallon. And this is $4 a gallon with our government subsidies. Now, on top of that, for corn ethanol, if you were to factor in the increased price of crops around the world based on the Iowa State analysis, every gallon of corn ethanol costs another $6. So you've got $4 in subsidies, $6 in increased crop prices plus the actual price of the fuel. So uh, I do think these things, what this really suggests is that we're putting a huge amount of money, an enormous amount of money right now, into each gallon of biofuel, which to me means expect a really good environmental benefit. I mean, if we're gonna do that, let's get a lot of benefit. Hi, my name is Brooke Coleman. I'm, uh the director of the New Fuels Alliance. I'm one of the silly people that has criticized some of Tim's assumptions, and um, we won't get into into that. But um, I have a, a sort of a broader question. It seems to me that this issue of indirect impacts, counting second, third, fourth order, fourth order effects, is only being applied to biofuels. It's associated with biofuels in this form. We haven't done it for for petroleum. We haven't done it for a, a piece of plywood. We haven't done it for anything else. Which begs the question. Um, what is the solution? Too often the criticism of biofuels, we're in Rayburn House, too often the criticism of biofuels leads you to the point of, well, maybe we shouldn't use these fuels. The outcome of that is using more oil, which has not undergone the indirect impacts analysis that biofuels is now undergoing. 
it seems to me that the better solution might be to have a comprehensive climate program that derives all of these products towards a certain outcome and, uh, in essence, uh, makes all of these products take into account their inputs. Uh, any of you can, can address that. So I, th I think that, at least I hope that what I was saying in my comments were highlighting that that is effectively the direction. And thankfully, there are tools that are now being used. I mean, essentially, all of these analyses that you heard today were highlighting the life cycle story. And the life cycle story, as Joe mentioned from our early 2006 paper, which is now antiquated, to these more evolved ones that have the, the indirect land use, was essentially adding to that life cycle assessment. Anyone who buys TerraPass offset carbon credits is essentially banking on someone did that life cycle analysis well so that you can feel good, or maybe you shouldn't feel good, about spending those few dollars to offset your trip around the world or my flight out here from, from California. So I actually think that the, that the science and the analysis tools are heading exactly in this direction. That said, the subsidy in place for existing technologies is in general large, and it is certainly very large for fossil fuels. How we decide how much of that is on the table, is a legitimate thing to include or not, we're going to find out. But there's no question that pricing the greenhouse gases and pricing the environmental damage is where this, cal is, is where this story is going. You know, whether one wants to use the tax word or the cap and trade word or whichever version is the most familiar or comfortable or want to avoid, that's the direction where all this is pushing. And as much as one might like to subsidize the good, let's say that someone makes a great argument for plugins, someone makes a good argument for a switchgrass biofuel, in the end, the economically more efficient way to do it is not to subsidize the good. It is, in fact, to tax the bad. And the bad isn't fossil fuels. The bad is greenhouse gases released. So what California is doing now is both working that process out, but also evolving the low carbon fuel standard into something that's going to be called more like the sustainable fuel standard, where the amount of water intensity is also going to be factored in and accounted for and the amount of nitrification is going to be factored into that equation. That's the process that a number of states are going. That's actually part of the process that Europe is now engaged in. That doesn't make the process any easier, but there's no question that what you implied in the question is very much how this dialogue, at least from what we know now about how to address it, is likely or needs to go. Let me just do this uh, say briefly, uh, that I would completely agree with a technology-neutral standard, which would be a cap-and-trade or tax. Obviously, the energy bill didn't do that. It picked biofuels uh, as the specific technology. As regard to the kind of question of applying land use to biofuels, the essence of my presentation was to try to show that biofuels are really a, a land carbon sequestration strategy, that basically the whole reason we think biofuels can be good from a greenhouse gas benefit is we attribute to the biofuel the fact that using land takes carbon out of the atmosphere. So that immediately raises the question, are we better off using land to produce biofuels? Or are we better off using land its existing way, which is what our analysis did? Or would we even be better off using land a better way? So biofuels are a land use strategy when you use land to produce biofuels.
My name is Connie Lost, and I'm with a firm called New Generation Biofuels. We're a second or third generation biofuel company. Um, so I have a, a couple questions that I think I can lump into one. First, you talked a lot about um, land use and how we go about farming, but um, no one really talked about new farm techniques such as um, no tilling farming. And so if one of you could address that in terms of how that can help with reducing the carbon emissions, that'd be great. And then the second um, question is sort of a general question as well, that um, there's been a lot of focus on ethanol during all of your conversations and not so much of a, an addressing of the fact that there are new technologies coming out that are looking at using um, non-food source crops that are supposed to be grown on marginal lands. Um, and so I guess my, my fear is, and maybe someone can address this, that by sort of focusing on something, on, on one technology, um, perhaps some of the benefits of these new technologies may actually get drowned out. Um, farming practices have been uh, undergoing deeper research, and the, the initial study suggested that, that a no-till or low-till agriculture for, let's say, corn would increase carbon stores in the agricultural ecosystems. And a, a recent review by Baker at Minnesota and, and others actually uh, has drawn that conclusion into question. And this is sort of where we are. Biofuels are pretty new, and research, it's not, it shouldn't be surprising that, that new research might contradict the old. Right now, I don't really know what, it, what the story is, but I have great, uh, great reasons to doubt that uh, no-till agriculture actually is leading to increased storage of carbon. In essence, what they found was that the, the method used by the majority of the early researchers was to only measure the carbon in the upper 10 centimeters, the upper four inches of soil. And in no-till, because the, the dead corn is not plowed deep into the soil, most of it was ending up right on the surface, and you had more carbon in that upper four or so inches. When they actually measured carbon down to about a foot depth, they found there was no net change in that total uh, profile. There just was more carbon high and less carbon low compared to what there had been before under conventional tillage, where it was a more uniform layer of carbon to that whole depth. And that was a, a fairly major review, looking at a large number of stu uh, uh, published studies. So I, I think the, the jury, you could say, is out. But right now, I would doubt if there will be much carbon stored from no-till agriculture. It was a wonderful idea. It looks like it's unfortunate they may not actually be working. But it has many benefits, yes, I'm not saying that. But the carbon storage. No. Let me add briefly also, if you, no matter what you did to the tillage practices of crops, it would have a very, very small impact on the calculation when you factor in land use change. I gave the example that if literally your ethanol just appeared in your tank without any tillage, uh, no emissions, it still would have an increase in, in greenhouse gas emissions from the land use change. And when you plow up forest or grassland, no nothing you can do can avoid having a big initial emission. Um, on your second point, I think everybody here did emphasize that to the extent you can make a biofuel without triggering land use change from waste products, uh, that doesn't cause these problems and it has the potential to be beneficial. Um, and, and I even, I actually don't even think there was any technical disagreement up here uh, in that uh, what Dave basically said is if we were to use our CRP land, in a different way, we could produce some biofuels from that CRP land while preserving the other benefits. And I would agree with that too, although I, I would wonder about the practicality. But in, in any scenario, all of our uh, statements indicate that the primary available source of biomass 
that could produce biofuels beneficially are from, in some form or another, some kind of waste product. Let me just tell, just a, as a footnote on the waste story, and that is there has been a great deal of attention to the algae biofuels route, and that's an area of hot interest right now. It's worth discussing. One of the real attractive features is that algae biofuels growing on non-arable land, like parking lots of power plants and in neighboring areas, very attractive on that level, and may use the CO2 from the power plants as the feedstock, warm CO2 to feed the algae. Excellent area, lots of research, and there are dramatic challenges in terms of getting reasonable volumes of this out for a variety of reasons getting enough of the light and the nutrients to the algaes, being able to separate out them, having them not poison themselves as, as they produce their biofuel. And again, whether the biofuel is algae or more complicated species, one question highlighted, I think, that ethanol itself, irrespective of its stock, may be a very poor choice for your alternate fuel anyway. And there are groups that are very excited about butanol and a variety of other things. So there's a whole range that are out there. The algae route looks very promising. It's got some real challenges. It's very and it's very infrastructure intensive, even if we can get the, the whole path to produce it down pat, to get any significant volume of it out. But it's certainly an area that's attractive right now and is receiving the attention that it deserves. My name is Ken Austin. I'm an economist the Treasury Department. I have a question about the strategy for using um, waste cellulose or cellulose from any source, um, the strategy of using it, converting it to biofuels is that you're going to harvest the energy from cellulose that otherwise would have biodegraded and return the carbon to the atmosphere. An alternative is simply to bury it. If you bury a ton of cell, uh, dry cellulose, you bury the equivalent of the emissions of 120 gallons of gasoline. Um, have you considered um, the net benefits of that alternative, simply burying it, um, in some cases, redesigning landfills to prevent biodegradation. Many people condemn landfills because they don't allow it. So very cheaply, you could create, cause a small-scale carbon sink. Have you looked at that, measured the alternatives? I have. It's a great idea. <laughs> uh, well, l l let me, let me, more. Let me pr comment very briefly, though. Um, there are, what we compared was the alternative uses of land, or the existing use of land, not the alternative best use. So for example, with any biomass product, all the analyses agree that if you're going to use it for energy, the best thing to do is to use it in, in a power plant. So that's just if you, for maximum greenhouse gas savings. So this assumes, all of these kinds of discussions up here, I think, assume that uh, we're doing, we're interested in biofuels for other reasons as well. And uh, so, if, yes, if the only factor were greenhouse gas emissions, forget it. You'd never, you'd never use biofuels because if, if nothing else, you'd burn them in a power plant. Did you have a I mean, this idea of pickling the, just pickling the materials, which is it's often called, you know, growing trees, dumping them down, uh, old tube wells, burying massive amounts of biomass. This is also a major infrastructure question in itself. One could think about it, but if you're going to transport these to do it, uh, you find optimal sites. You're already, this is, this is a hard, hard equation, and the volume of the stuff becomes very large. So there are a number of infrastructural reasons why this would be a challenging route if you wanted to.
Hi, Franz Matzner with Natural Resources Defense Council. And I guess I have one overall question and one sort of really small question. And uh, one is, um, you, you sort of mentioned this, I, I think, but um, how did you guys factor in, or, or to what degree did you guys factor into your analyses the question of opportunity costs when you're talking about things, you know, degraded lands and, and, and alternative uses, you know, and what's your thoughts on the question of, well, you, you could theoretically just simply let, let us track of land naturally regrow into its grassland or into its uh, original forest state if it's, you know, recovering uh, or abandoned agricultural land and how would that play against the, the I mean, the, in just simply the greenhouse gas uh, calculation. And the second question, I guess I had three, but I'll just do two. The second, the second question is, you sort of alluded to this and I was wondering if you choose to, if you want to expand a little bit on the idea of, of, of not just looking at the carbon or the greenhouse gas metric um, when evaluating uh, biofuels or, or any, any of these sources, um, you know, for example, water use, water quality, biodiversity, you mentioned specifically, um, and, and how those, you know, you know, I think that one thing I've seen is the Swiss, there was a Swiss metric, a Swiss study that applied multiple um, factors into that metric, and I uh, just wondered what your thoughts were on, on those two questions. Well, first, I think that uh, with the world as we are and as we are becoming, we are going to have to look at all of the various goods uh, and services, direct and indirect, ecosystem and, and otherwise, that we get from land and, and from alternative ways that we use it. So uh, we mainly address today carbon dioxide because it's pretty easy to measure carbon. And uh, there are at least a few attempts to put a price on carbon so far. Um, uh, there aren't, uh, it's uh, the influence, let's say, of, of land use change on uh, nutrient loading, alternative ways of growing different crops has not really been looked at for many of these new uh, perennial biomass crops. It needs to be done. But uh, there are many other impacts that, that, that uh, different biofuel crops could have and different ways of making them could have that, that would affect in various ways the, the quality of life, if you will, for society that, that need to be measured and quantified. And I think that as we, as I view us coming into this time when, when we are increasingly greatly squeezed by increasing population and consumption around the world, we're going to have to look at all of these and we're going to have to find what is the, you know, the optimum with many, many different uh, simultaneous constraints. We have to find some way to price them, some, some kind of common currency. And pricing externalities is a uh, much more an art than a science in economics right now. So if we want to have the common currency be dollars, we have to find some, we have to decide how we actually value these things. That, that question has not been answered. I think that's a, that's a major area for advances in economics if we want to have that be the currency. Otherwise, it may be more of a qualitative uh, set of judgments uh, that need to be made. And, and um, I think those are so much open to alternative interpretation, they may not be in the long term very useful for society, but maybe they will be. I'm not sure how we really make up our minds. Uh, as, a, as to the first point, how much carbon is stored, um, at least from some research that we've done, we can have much higher rates of carbon stores uh, in, the sh in, in our short-term experiments, and an experiment that has been running for the last 24 years now, much longer-term rates of carbon storage uh, by changing the mix from what would occur in a natural succession. Basically, uh, especially legumes have large seeds. They don't disperse very well. They have lots of sort of establishment things which keep them rarer in a system than they would be if you added them as seed. So even we go to add native species to form a grassland, you can make it have a different composition than it would have had on its own. And what we've seen in systems where we have uh, increased legume abundance, those systems store much more carbon even on native, apparently never, well, never farm native soils that seem to have an equilibrium amount of carbon and nitrogen in their soil. We have seen in the last 20 some years by increasing legume abundance in them that that carbon and nitrogen in that soil has doubled in that 25 year period. 
So twice as much carbon stored in the soil as had been stored in the native ecosystem uh, before uh, that uh, shift in legume abundance happened. So it may be uh, that there can be some real advantages in the long term. And if you want to take an even longer term perspective, you might say, well, maybe we should have a thing about a global system of, ro of rotating lands where we farm them for a while, put them into biofuel production for 50 or so years, greatly build up carbon and nitrogen and so on, minimizing the need for chemical fertilizer on those in the future. Uh, and anyway, but fun questions along these lines. Thanks for the question. Let me uh, maybe answer it in this way. Uh, my view is we should have a policy judgment that says we will not use productive land for energy. There are a number of reasons for that. One is it's likely to increase global warming for the reasons we've talked about. It's highly, and one other reason is there's high uncertainty. Let me give you an example. What if in response to doubling the price of, of crops, uh, Peru says we want to start using our Amazon for energy, or Brazil says we actually want to start draining wetlands. There are inherent uncertainties to these calculations, and the risk is too high. Second reason is, look, maybe there, I gave you examples. There are ways to burn down the Amazon that you might be able to get a greenhouse gas benefit, but does somebody really want to do that? Somebody else could calculate, EPA may calculate, that actually we've underestimated the reduction in food consumption. So you get a greenhouse gas benefit from reducing food. We really want to do that? That's really our strategy? I'm, I'm telling you, that is going to be in the calculations. Don't laugh. That is there right now. So there are, there, there are serious costs to doing that. Now, the most important reason is this. You, you, you were told that uh, uh, land use change is the source of 20% of CO2 emissions, which means if we don't reverse land use change, we could eliminate all emissions from the energy use we'd have to eliminate 100% of them to get to an 80% CO2 reduction goal. Now, Dave talked about how hard it's going to be to reduce emissions from land use change with 9.5 billion people eating more. So the point is that given a choice, we may have other alternatives. We have plug-in hybrid alternatives. We have other things we can do in the energy sector. There is no alternative in the land use sector other than to reforest land. So I would say the opportunity costs in the land sector is enormous. While we have many, many other opportunities, probably in many cases cheaper opportunities in the, in the energy sector, not saying don't use biofuels, but the policy decision is don't use productive land. And then we can have some debate about how marginal, how do you measure that, but don't use productive land. We need it too much. Uh, one quick response that our analyses um, we assumed that the natural ecosystems that were being converted were at carbon equilibrium and were not storing additional carbon, except in the case of the uh, Conservation Reserve Program land, which we know is storing carbon, and we have some good estimates on that. So in that respect, our analyses were conservative because they were just talking about the difference in how much carbon is there in the natural ecosystem versus how much is in the agricultural system. And, we did, and, and so the, and, uh, there was no credit or opportunity cost for carbon that was being stored in those natural systems. So in that sense, our results may have been a little bit conservative about the carbon debt. We had a question passed up to the front here by someone who, who couldn't make it up here, so let me just read the question. Can uh, we define uh, abandoned land, marginal land, and degraded land? Uh, and, give, and these are good questions. We use these terms. We know what they are, but it's, it's like what I always disliked about being a biologist. There are a million, what, 10 million species 
and all these different term terms. So, so define abandoned land, marginal land, degraded land, and give estimates of how much and where in the U.S. these types of lands uh, occur. Well, abandoned land refers to land that has been cleared, farmed, and no longer is being farmed. Some landowner decided not to farm it, so it's been abandoned. Uh, the um, degraded land, uh, the, the definition that, let's say, the UN uses for that, our degraded lands are lands that have lost, I think it's about something like 30% of their productive capacity. Uh, and so, and that typically happens on almost any soil after about 50 years of farming. Many soils that are degraded are still fabulous for, for, for productivity. They're just not as good as they were before they were farmed for 50 years and lost carbon and nitrogen from the soils. Uh, and marginal land is land that, has, that uh, is of low utility. A farmer has a hard time making uh, a profit growing a crop on it. And marginal land could have been marginal the moment it was first uh, farmed because of climate or soils, or it could have been made marginal by being degraded. So then the, the more substantive issue is how much of these lands are there? Well, the uh, the USDA keeps track of lots of land that, and it is, has classified it in various ways. So on the land that, that farmers have set aside and currently receive payments on it, that is, those are lands that are in the CRP program for federal lands and various state programs of other lands like that. Minnesota is something called reinvest in Minnesota lands that are lands that have been set aside from agriculture and, and a farmer is, has decided that a, uh, a fixed payment is better than a farming that land. Um, so those are things which can be looked at in this category. There have been some classifications of, of how fertile those lands are. We know exactly where they are. There are county-by-county county maps across the United States. We know how much biomass can be produced on nearby lands, let's say, that are growing hay without fertilization, without irrigation, which is a good estimate of how much energy should come on those CRP lands. So actually there have been some nice maps showing where you can get biomass from these uh, CRP lands, which uh, are at least abandoned, uh, in a sense. Um, and many of them, because they've been farmed for a while, are degraded, but they do have uh, other benefits. The CRP program is a conservation reserve program. It actually is providing society with lots of benefits, as I've been reminded when I get phone calls from Ducks Unlimited and uh, Trout Unlimited or whatever it is, people who are very concerned about CRP lands leaving that role and having uh, silt loading, loss of habitat, and so on becoming major issues for river streams, ducks, and, and uh, other wildlife. Uh, or pheasants. Um, I don't hunt pheasants, but many people do. Um, let me see. Let me see. What, did, what about greenhouse gas uh, benefits for biofuels from these lands? I guess that's what it is. I guess we did talk about that. These lands themselves already provide a greenhouse gas benefit. Lands that have been taken out of annual crop agriculture and are now in perennials are storing carbon every year in those soils. And with the right thing, they might store more. The way you get a CO2 benefit using degraded land is it's got to be so degraded that it is producing little carbon and stores little carbon. And if you can take unproductive land and by using a biomass crop significantly and make it very productive, which is going to be a limited category of lands, then you can get a net benefit. Or in Dave's case, what he's talking about in the CRP example is lands we've already set aside. So they're not in crop production, and the question is, can you simultaneously get the benefits they already have and energy? That would be a net benefit. But 
the, the term degraded land is thrown around as an excuse too often of, for making bonds. And let me just highlight the overseas example. So I put up the Africa map. And that is there's another whole category. They don't just go to degraded land. There's also severely degraded land, which is 60% less productivity than neighboring systems, similar water, similar solar insulation. And a number of East African countries, a number of Central American nations have over 25% of all, not just the marginal, but all of the agricultural lands in those categories. So if crops are worked on that, are, that enable you to essentially reinvest in the land in these areas, there are some potential upside areas. They happen to be areas where we've largely degraded them in the first place, but we should be thinking about those as well. And that's a very significant issue because marginal added food production in those areas is of huge value. So there is sort of an, you know, it's an upside because of our past misdeeds, but it's a significant one. There's a paper that was published in Trends in Ecology uh, and the Environment in, uh, also in February by Chris Field that estimates there's 380 um, million hectares of land globally that falls into this category of, um, well, he, they looked at abandoned lands and then they subtracted lands that had, were reforested and lands that were currently being grazed and then estimated that you end up with 380 million hectares of degraded land or abandoned land that could be used for biofuel production and estimated this would, could produce um, about 5% of the world's total energy consumption. So that kind of gives you the order of magnitude scale that, um, that the, of the potential, I think. But I, I yeah. actually talked to Chris Field about this. And that includes in that category are areas that are regrowing as shrublands and things like that that may have a lot of carbon on them. So that's the kind of the, he now has to kind of bore in from that 380 uh, million hectares. Hi, I'm Floriano, a journalist from Brazil and a congressional fellow here. Um, I guess my question goes mainly to the speaker from California. Um, uh, not the speaker. Uh, okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> not the speaker of the house, but a speaker here. Uh, uh, concerning um, sugarcane-based sugar um, ethanol, um, if we think in a global scale, uh, if you could elaborate a little bit more on that, because um, the U.S. and Brazil, they produce roughly 70% of world's ethanol, but the Brazilian ethanol is not based on corn or soy, it's based on sugarcane. And um, most of that is planted in, in Sao Paulo estate, which is far, far away from the Amazon. And um, ethanol and, well, sugarcane in Brazil takes, um, as far as I know, some 1% of the arable land in the country. Um, so you're, yeah, thanks. So actually, both of the authors of the paper should also comment because, of course, sugarcane grown in Brazil are cases that they both put in. I think the, the broader story is that relative to corn, sugarcane is a dramatic winner on an energy basis, roughly eight times better, not percent, but eight times. It's dramatically better. So in fact, in both calculations, you'll see that it came out much better. The concerns aren't so much on existing land. The concerns are what might be the expansions of that and whether it's in Brazil or Indonesia. And the concern here's expansion isn't just on the greenhouse gas, it's also on how water intensive sugarcane is. And so the places where it's suitable are also an issue. But I want to let each author, because they each, as I said, they each have this calculation in their version. But on the energy basis, it is this dramatic winner relative to corn, which is a winner relative to a loser, but 
sugarcane itself on an energy basis is a winner. It's the rest of the story that's going to complicate things. Uh, we've essentially suggested the following deal. The real concern with sugarcane is when you expand into grazing land and to some extent in soybeans, do you push people further into the Amazon? And the fact that there's a long distance between them is completely irrelevant in my view. I mean, basically, the history of Brazilian agriculture is go north, young man. It's been this kind of spreading agriculture, and you get more intensification behind and less intensification up front. So we've essentially suggested the following deal could be made with uh, Brazil, which is essentially, if Brazil actually assures that that doesn't happen, both by protecting the forest and by mitigating the loss of grassland by using very specific things it can do to double and triple the yields of grasslands in Brazil, which just happen to be, as far as I can tell, known technologies, just a question of spending the money, then you can expand into some of those other uh, uh, often referred to as degraded grasslands with sugarcane and maybe even better yet with miscanthus. So I think that there are opportunities in Brazil and a few other countries very, have to be looked at very, very carefully as part of a kind of a global deal where you kind of um, prevent that kind of, of creeping agricultural expansion through, through these kinds of offsets where I think Brazil could be a significant uh, maker of biofuels. And, and my hope is that that will be part of the discussion as part of a next climate change treaty. Yeah, I don't have uh, too much to add. I think that, um, I guess the numbers I've heard is 2% of the country is, of Brazil is in sugarcane and half of that sugarcane is used for ethanol. So yeah, so 1% sugarcane ethanol. Most of that is in um, grassland and the, the question, as Tim said, is what happens with expansion? And so some of the past expansion, um, there's been sugarcane going into land that was pasture, and some of the, the, um, the grazing lands, they've managed to increase the number of head of cattle they can have on them. So they went from one head per hectare to 1.2. So, um, so if they can pr uh, increase the productivity of the grazing lands, there may be room, you know, there's room for expansion without pushing grazers into uh, the Amazon. And it's, so I think that's, that is a real opportunity that should be looked at. And again, our, our paper, um, uh, as Dan said, was showed that sugarcane ethanol in the Cerrado uh, was the, had the, the shortest payback time, but of course the best um, scenario is not to have the sugarcane converting Cerrado, which is uh, the native savanna, which is quite diverse and, and um, has largely been converted and deserves to be protected in it for the, its biodiversity in its own right, but looking at uh, expansion on those grazing, those uh, degraded grazing lands. And I guess the other um, thing that I, I, this gets towards the edge of my knowledge of uh, um, the dynamics of Brazilian, of land use in Brazil, but some of the conversion is, occurs because of uh, land tenure laws. So it can be advantageous for people without any land or money to clear land and, and put some cattle on it. And so I think there's opportunities for policy changes that would help protect the Amazon. Um, and the, oh, the final point is that, that I know some people are concerned about production of uh, palm oil and whether that would increase in, in Brazil. So I think we do, as we look to the forward with where the expansion comes from, those are all issues that should be addressed. Um. Let's get some more questions from people who've been sitting here for quite a while. There, were you next? Oh, you, oh I got it. We'll read that in a, in a few minutes. We'll put it in the sequence, and uh, Dan will read it, and then you, and then you. 
Okay, and I'm going to ask the speakers too to uh, see if they could be a little more succinct, sharpen up the responses. Thank you. Doug Boucher from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, I'd like to ask you each uh, what kind of policies you would recommend to ensure that uh, biofuels are produced on degraded land, or to put it another way, that to prevent biofuels from being produced on fertile land. Farmers usually, for profitable crops, use more fertile land, and it seems like a $100 barrel oil makes biofuels a profitable crop. So I'll start. I mean, the, so there is, of course, no good strategy to this one yet. If we don't do the carbon valuation of not only our energy but our agricultural decisions, we're going to make this job very difficult. And it's not just energy and ag, by the way. A uh, number of places, it's the water, too, you're going to have to certify in the end. So I sound like an accountant's nightmare, or an accountant's dream, I guess, in the sense that we have places where 20% of all energy in a given state goes to move water. Hence, water would need to be labeled. And so if water is not only for drinking but also for agriculture, this labeling is going to need to reflect that greenhouse gas signature. So if you want to address, you know, if you want to try to put a break on this, one of the clear mechanisms is to value these for their carbon value. And what you're hearing from the speaker, from, from, the, from, from the authors on these papers, is that in many cases, the larger carbon benefit is to leave the system alone, to tend it as a natural system, and not convert it. And that's economically often the hardest story, but we aren't right now valuing the key externality here. So we haven't started on the process to get us there. I thought it was a good answer and other people wanted to ask questions. I some nervousness in the audience. Let me just very briefly, uh, one thing that is quite odd is that Congress, at least the House, is poised to extend the fuel tax credit. Now this is, when you already have the mandate for 36 billion gallons, the only purpose of the fuel tax credit could be to incentivize things that aren't in the mandate. And the analyses would show that corn ethanol would actually go above 15 billion gallons, given the high fuel price, if you extend the fuel tax credit. So if the desire is to at least hold corn ethanol at 15 billion gallons, you don't extend the fuel tax credit. And uh, you know, otherwise, the answer is there should be a policy that says don't use productive land. Hi, I'm Jenny Mandel, a reporter with Climate Wire. Um, a question, I guess, for Tim and Joe primarily. Um, there were, you talked about the degradation in soil taking place over the, say, 10 to 20 years. Um, a lot of people talk about corn ethanol as a bridge technology until the cellulosic technologies are ready. Can you talk a little bit about how, say, if, it, if land were used for five years, converted and used for something, you know, a, a bridge period of time, and then used for cellulosic, sort of how that slope happens over the 10 to 20 years? of um, carbon loss? Um, we've got three minutes to clear out of here. We're going to answer the question, and then we're going to answer that question, then we're going to clear out. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, sort of exponential decay. So the, you know, the majority of the uh, carbon emissions happens in the first few years, but it would be less. So, um, but we didn't try to you know, I think that, that the exact shape of that curve, it would depend on the exact shape of that curve, which I don't think is perfectly known. But there's, I can point you to some papers that attempt to quantify that. The, the, key, the key lesson was that if you, even if you grow cellulosic on cropland, you end up with an increase in CO2. So 
starting with corn and switching to cellulose on the same cropland doesn't avoid the fact that both of them are going to increase CO2. That's kind of the key message. And I think a piece of logistics is that we don't currently have any plans to take distilleries based around corn and upgrade them in some wonderful way to an ideal cellulosic species. So that, that technology conversion, in other words, if we're building 120 uh, ethanol, corn ethanol distilleries today and we're building seven cellulosic distilleries, there is no logical conversion path that we're about to embark on to go from one to the other. We would need to re-engineer them if subject to this carbon constraint, which looks pretty bad. My name is Janaki Alavalapati. I'm a professor of forest resource economics at the University of Florida, and also I'm a Jefferson Science Fellow at the Department of State. Uh, I have two quick doubts. Uh, I think uh, um, Dr. Sarchinger told us that uh, the, the food products will have uh, will be very inelastic, but at the same time, twice he mentioned that, okay, consumption of less food is going to, you know, reduce ga greenhouse gas emissions. So I'm, I'm a little bit confused from economic viewpoint. On one side, inelastic. On one side, reduction of huge consumption reduction, which is a little bit. My second uh, doubt is, I think he mentioned twice, um, it doesn't matter whatever the land we are going to use in terms of producing some kind of biomass. And well, sure, I, I totally agree with you in terms of uh, sequestering carbon, uh, carbon from from land perspective, but the, essentially the effect is going to be huge. At least from my research perspective, how you are going to use that product to displace other high energy intensive products. For example, Corium at University of Washington does exactly that that kind of study. If you just stop your analysis, okay, sure, you are producing some biomass, and and at the same time, if you make an assumption that no matter you change that land to other production, it's not going to make any difference. But what I'm saying is, for example, if you produce two by fours, and if you just quantify greenhouse gas emissions there, it doesn't give the full picture. But when you, when, when you consider how the two by four is going to displace some kind of aluminum or steel product, that's where a huge benefit is going to be. That's what Corim Institute uh, produce a huge number of reports on that one. And the, my final question is essentially, if we just focus on only uh, the, the carbon sequestration or car, uh, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions associated with biofuels, probably we may not have huge impact. My question is, are there any other benefits which we need to be considering into this analysis, like, like political benefits or maybe social benefits or something? Thank you. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the short answer is that food demand is inelastic, but it's not 100% inelastic, and that's what you're seeing right now, uh, among other things. And the problem is that if even food demand goes down by 5%, just as a, this is not the exact example, if food demand goes down by 5% because 5% of the world's people die, that's still a very bad thing. It doesn't have a very big greenhouse gas effect. I, I frankly actually didn't really understand the other uh, questions. Well, um I wish we could go on. I think the speakers would be up for doing that at least for 10 minutes more. But uh, um, I want to thank everybody for coming. Um, and uh, we're going to come out again next month. Thank you. Thank you.